Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Kieran, aka the boy Bailey, co-founder of Experience 101 and all-round hospitality guru. Coming up in today's show, Kieran reveals his reaction to when we asked him on the show. Yeah, man, let's do it. Yeah, man, I love it. Phil talks about one of life's truths. Never too old for a smack around the head from your mum. And Kieran gives us a sneaky preview of his upcoming musical debut. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. All that and so much more as Kieran talks us through his story and journey so far. In addition, look out for some superb content in here about leadership and collaboration. Since having this chat, I'm also delighted to announce that Kieran and Chris from EXP 101, along with myself and some other industry friends, are collaborating on a fantastic project. Hospitality Aid 2020, a Live Aid-style concert full of talented people from within the hospitality industry coming together to raise money for Action Against Hunger. We need everyone to get behind it. Go to experience101.co.uk to get involved. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the next edition of Hospitality Meets with me, your host, Phil Street. Today, I'm delighted to welcome to the show somebody who I've not known for very long, never met, in fact, but uh, getting to know better by the day. Delighted to welcome to the show, Kieran, aka The Boy Bailey. Uh, thank you very much. And I, I can't believe we've never met, to be fair. I think uh, looking at the uh, the circles that we keep, it seems bizarre, really, if I'm honest with you. But I do appreciate you having me on. These are oh, pleasure, absolute pleasure. The uh, I think the circles that, that we keep are becoming more and more pronounced by the day, the, with every day that we're in lockdown as well. For sure. So well, before we get started... Where does the boy Bailey come from? What's the the origins of that? It is a little trip back to when I was a young lad in school. I'm the youngest of six children, and uh, I remember that when my twin brother and I, Sean, when we when we first kind of moved up to uh, secondary school, uh, one of the first things, one of the first teachers I spoke to said to me, "Hmm, you're one of those Bailey boys, are you?" Um, <laughs> my three older brothers really did set the tone. Uh, and the expectation of my teachers for my brother and I. There's no getting around it at all. And it was very much kind of that's how we were treated, to be fair. So, you know, when I went up, started to go out and speak in schools on behalf of Springboard, I thought I kind of I quite liked the idea of being able to connect with some a little story back. And it just kind of made sense, to be fair. Uh, and it just it's just carried on from there, really. And it's kind of become, you know, people now introduced me as that you know I, I was yep. at uh, an awards thing last December and Janine from the Ivy Group was introducing me to her team and she was just kind of chatting away and she went you know what I actually don't know what your name is she said it's just you're just the boy Bailey to me and I'm like that's I mean that's personal branding that's working isn't it yep. so I felt quite happy at that point um it's good that people don't really know my first name I guess is the honest answer but yeah, <laughs> yeah it's kind of means it's been successful but it's, it's just quite a useful thing for kind of all of my social media. It's a useful thing for a lot of the videos and stuff that I put out and the kind of the, the kind of ideas that I share. It's just an easy way for people to be able to track it, really. Yeah. So, well, talk us through what it is that you, you do with your life at this point in time, other than lockdown, of course. <laughs> other than lockdown. Well, I mean, lockdown has changed my life exponentially. There's no mm. getting around that at all. Normally... Uh, about this point on a Tuesday, I would be uh, wrapping up my laptop in a coffee shop, uh, having uh, done a whole load of work from there and thinking about going to get my dog from doggy daycare. Um, I spend, which, you know, she loves, I, works for me and uh, everyone's a winner. 
but I probably I split my days in in a, in a couple of ways. I deliver and facilitate training uh, programs around kind of guest experience, around leadership, around coaching, all the things that kind of make me smile. But then I also do some restaurant coaching with some smaller brands um, and kind of helping them to develop and grow their business. For me, that's it, it's it's being able to share that knowledge that kind of you've built up over the previous 20 odd, 25 years or so, just yeah. why would we keep it to ourselves? So I kind of, I'm of the opinion that if it's in my head and somebody else could use it, then I share as much of it as I possibly can do. And that's how I get to spend my days really. Yeah. So I do that. And then uh, I'm co-founder of a little thing called Experience 101, which uh, is a, a passion project from Chris and myself, where we yeah. just... We look to bring together really cool, interesting people uh, who uh, who want to share stories and solve problems for the industry, really. Yeah, well, I like the sound of that a lot. I mean, uh, obviously, you know that Chris was on episode one. And really, until that point, I hadn't heard about what you guys were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just I, I'm 100% on board with what you're you're trying to achieve there, just in terms of raising the positive voice uh, a bit louder because there's so much positive stuff. Yeah, there really is. I mean, the innovation, the creativity, the kind of the collaboration that rolls through this industry is amazing. And I just think we we need to do better at kind of shouting about that and really kind of giving it a a, a unified voice, I guess. Um, And for us, it was about kind of taking those CEOs, founders, kind of senior leaders and putting them back in a room with maybe more junior people who are earlier in their journey so they can actually start to share some of that understanding, some of that knowledge. Because again, you know, I'm a big believer. If you've, if you've spent time and effort in building it up, then the next job is to pass it on. That's what we should be aiming for. So yeah. that's that's very much how I spend my days, really, in in each of my kind of each of my kind of uh, roles, I guess, if I'm honest with you. That's the theme of my life. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I've, I've been excited to to kind of chat to you. As I said at the beginning, we've not known each other that that long. And I really don't know your story, and we'll come on to that in a second. And I, I said to my wife earlier on, actually, it's a little bit like going to the theatre to see a musical, and you've but you've got no idea what any of the songs are. Um, like, I like you, that. You're, you're aware of the individual, but you're not aware of the journey. And um, so, I, well, let's kick it off. I mean, we, I think we've done quite well five minutes in, and I haven't even asked you your story yet. That's probably a record. I'm now sitting here trying to think of a way in which I could sing my way through this. Oh, please. Uh, yeah. I, I think <laughs> that would be a first. It would, I think it may well ruin everybody's day, if I'm honest with you. <laughs> so having, having tried that once when I was about 16, singing in a band uh, and being absolutely terrified of the audience, uh, yeah, let's not do that again is a simple answer. Not for you. Not the you're, way to you're go. Clearly uh, comfortable in front of a crowd, though, because you're um, you, you do a lot of public speaking, don't you? So uh, you know, um, I got I got better. I got more. I got more confident in myself as time went by. Um, yeah. And I guess that came from my, my my career, if I'm honest with you, in hospitality. You know, you're kind of you're front and center, uh, so you don't get to be the kind of the shy retiring wallflower. You've got to be up there and ready and comfortable to have uh, have the big conversations. I guess so. Yeah, I guess for me, I kind of I, it very much started off when I was a kid. You know, everybody talks about kind of their first job. Well, my first job was probably a pot washer in a pub and it was horrible on a friday sort of friday saturday night little 13 year old boy trying to reach the uh, the sink getting uh, stuff thrown <laughs> at me and 
called all sorts of horrendous. I think I was called a pot pig once, which just felt rude, if I'm honest with you. Yeah. And I was, you just don't get to reply. There's, there's no right to reply at that age either. So it's just shut up and take it, and you'll be called a pot pig now for the rest of the day. And I'm like, okay. It's one of those where it's a good indicator of kind of what you don't want to do and how you don't want to treat people going forward. But um, yeah. I guess we all pick those up as time goes by. Um, so, yeah, started off in 13, did that, uh, did some work experience. Um did work experience in a little coffee shop, and I grew up in a little market town called Newark, um, which was a, a lovely little place, I guess. And the little coffee shop, it was opposite the post office. It was very busy on pension day. Uh, lots of little old ladies who absolutely loved me because I was a very cute little boy, you know. And I've, I was 15. Um, I looked, I reckon, probably up until the age of about 20. I looked about 12 most of the time. I was very young looking, which wasn't great when you get your first like liquor license at sort of 20. I'm trying to get people to take you seriously. Uh, that is not an ideal situation. Yeah. But um, did this work experience, uh, did a week, and uh, and the guy said, oh, do you want to come and get a job over the summer? And I was like, yeah, that's cool, actually. I've enjoyed this. Turned up, and within three days of being there, everybody left, the rest of the team, there was about three, four other people who worked there. And first of all, I was trying to work out if that was me and should I start to take this very personally, very quickly. But being a relatively sort of smart and aware boy, I worked out very quickly that the owner of the cafe was in fact left of center in the way he looked at life. He liked to shout at people and make them feel bad about themselves. So all of these people just left. And I spent that summer solely being in control of this little coffee shop, which was ridiculous. I was like 15 going on 16, right. running this little business, which when you think about it is absolutely crazy. Because but nobody else would take the punishment. Nobody else would or indeed could, to be fair. Now, I said that I'm the youngest of six, so I learned from an early age how to take a bit of a beating. You know, it's the one thing my older brothers really taught me well. Yeah. Um, so, and if, and if <laughs> I, this guy brother, I, I can relate to that. It works, doesn't it? You know, they, yeah, they, yeah. They, that, they see that as their job. And my brothers saw that very much as their job and said, yes, this is what we will do. So, I mean, the upside is, you know, this guy couldn't break me. There's a simple answer. So I just kept kind of turning up to work, doing my thing. Had a great time, you know. Like I say, the little old ladies were really, really sweet and really, really pleasant. And I was a cute-looking little boy who they just they looked after. So the tips were great. The pay was shocking. I remember I was paid about £1.20 an hour, um, which even then Goodness, yeah. was an absolute disgrace. So I obviously had to kind of really leverage the tip situation, which I did to the dream yeah but it inspired me it made me realize that this is a wonderful business you know and whilst yes there are some raging maniacs you know there is space for very cool people to do very cool things so i kind of thought yeah this is going to be for me went off and studied to be a chef spent a couple of years training to be a chef at college realized that i was a bit like gordon ramsay in, in only in the way that i have a huge mouth and uh, i'm very <laughs> comfortable to share it and just talk about what's on my mind Nothing like the same sort of culinary ability as the man. You know, we had a lot in common, but uh, it was yeah. always the good stuff. <laughs> so you got to be honest I, with yourself early on. Well, that's that's probably one of the first moments of sort of self-realization where I just thought, you know what, actually, being a bit of a dick, uh, and people don't like that very much. So yeah. understand quickly that being in the kitchen wasn't for me, but being front of house forced me a little bit to behave in a nicer way and in a better way, which was never a bad thing, to be fair. So. I decided that that would be the answer. So I, I dribbled around for the next few years, did some pub jobs, did some uh, serving jobs, did lots of DJing jobs, and, and just basically did enough to get by, really. My brother and I, we left home when we were sort of 17, moved across to Nottingham to live our best life. 
then around sort of 19 or so, I met my, my now wife and, uh, I kind of looked at her and thought, she's amazing. My wife is very, very smart. Um, she was studying at university, and I could see very clearly that she was kind of she was meant for great things. And I kind of I came to the conclusion that actually, you know what, if I want to kind of make her stick with me, because I really did, then I'm gonna have to up my game a little bit. So I went from kind of drifting around fairly aimlessly, doing enough to get by and enjoying my life, to thinking, right, purpose, get a purpose. So our purpose yep. would be working together. And we, we got a job in a hotel up in Scotland, went up to the a place called uh, Granton-on-Spey, just sort of north of Aviemore, which was lovely. Yep. Spent six months there. Again, another shining example, I guess, when I think about it. you know, Every, every job I've done, I've looked at examples of leadership. And some are really, really good, and some are really, really shocking. That was another good example of just poor leadership. And I just thought, wow, all I'm doing really here is just is, is tallying up behaviors that just don't work for me. Yeah. So we then transferred across the Isle of Skye, which is stunning. I mean, anybody you know who's listened to this who's never been there needs to sort themselves out. Yeah, well, here, listen to my accent. I've never been. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's shocking. It is shocking. In itself. Just what's going on? What's happening? Yeah, uh, I even I grew up on an island as well, so I, I have an, a, an affinity with the uh, the Isles of Scotland, but never been to Sky. Beautiful place, absolutely beautiful. I remember the first time we went there, and we had to get on the ferry, and it was a bumpy crossing. And I'm thinking, wow, this is bizarre. But as we were kind of coming round on the train, that there were palm trees, and I'm like, what is going on here? This is yeah. bizarre. Uh, and it, and I, they really stuck me. And I thought somebody must have planted those, thinking this is a great idea. But as it turns out, it's in a Gulf Stream that just made perfect sense at that at that splite, that place. Yeah. And that was my first impression of Sky. Really quite windy, but my God, there's palm trees. Yeah, I, I grew up on uh, the island of Tyree. I don't know if you know it, but um, it's uh, twelve miles by eight at its widest points. Damn, and it's flat as a pancake, and it's one of the first islands on the west side that gets hit by the weather. Um, so it, <laughs> That's going to get hit then, isn't it? Oh, yes. And so it, it, when the sun's out, it's just it looks like the Caribbean. It's just unbelievable. But you know, 80% of the time, it's windy as hell. How long did, were you there? How long did you live there? When did you move? It was age 11-ish to yeah. uh, through to university, basically. Okay. Uh, so I did, did my secondary schooling on the island, which is nuts. But um, that's that must have been a really strange experience. Yeah, very unique. There was uh, eight people in my class in my year. Wow! So great from a one to one teaching perspective. Not that that really helped me because I wasn't academically tuned in at that point. Let's put yeah. it that way. And um, yeah, and then uh, I, the rest is kind of history. I, I I never really went back after I went to university. I needed to to go out and see the world. This is not supposed to be about me. I know it's, but it's 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 interesting that that's that kind of that environment forms you, doesn't it? To a degree, yeah, totally. You know, I think about our time on Sky. It's that was that was six months. I was maybe twenty twenty one at that point, and uh, it had a huge impact on me. There's no getting around it because there wasn't a lot going on. There wasn't a huge amount of people there. We had tourists coming through left, right, and center, but there were not a huge amount of people there. And there was one there was one guy who worked in the hotel. He was the bars manager named Eddie, and he was a Geordie fella. And uh, and he really did kind of have, a, have an impact on me. He was just, he was a good guy. You know, he was good. He was funny. You know, uh, I remember one thing he said to me, and one thing he would say quite a lot is, you're not bored, you're boring. And I'm like, I kind of like that. And I'm going to stick yeah. with that as a premise. Yeah, could see that. You know? And 
it, it just makes sense. So kind of all of those people who are standing on this little island who were just saying, I, got, I mean, we had a lot of kids up from Glasgow who were forced to go and work there by the job centres and stuff and from Falkirk and Hamilton and all those little places. And uh, they were forced to be there and they, and they would just criticise it. And he would be like, told you, you're not bored, you're boring. So go and do something, go and find something interesting to do. There's cool stuff happening. And there was, it was a beautiful place. Yeah. But eventually you get to the point where the kind of the, the excitement on a f- sort of Saturday night was watching this little fella called Tam try to get home from A to B. And the, the, the fun factor was kind of gambling on how long it would take him to get there <laughs> because it was quite windy. And he would go from lamppost to lamppost, basically. You know, he would spend his entire day in the pub. And that was his defense. Yeah. So it's kind of like, will he make it to the fifth lamppost? Will he only make it to the third lamppost and go? We would just gamble on that, which is, is atrocious in itself, but it was entertaining. Absolutely. But now, there's loads of stories like that from, from the islands. It's um it's just a it's a wonderful place to grow up, actually, because it was monumentally safe. Yes. You know, and you've got beaches on your doorstep and there's lots and lots of positive reasons as to why. I just never saw any of them when I was a teenager. And you're probably never going to as a teenager, I guess. It's when you can just step back and look at it and think, well, actually, that was the, the, that safety is quite an amazing thing. I mean, people say to me now, kind of, what's uh, somebody asked me last week, what's your favorite beach? Tell me the most beautiful beach. And I'm like, Talasca Bay is outrageously stunning. Yeah. Pure white sand on, on the Isle of Skye. And it just, nobody, you see people kind of like, oh, you're silly. It's a beach on, on in Scotland, mate. You know, how lovely is it going to be? I'm like, trust me, yeah. it is beautiful. And I think that's one of the things, actually. I think that's going to be one of the upsides of this whole situation right now, that people are actually going to start to appreciate what we have on our doorstep in this country yeah. and actually really start to kind of embrace that. I think but, one they'll um, probably be forced to in the short term anyway, yep. but two, it, it hopefully will re-engage people with the fact that there is a there's an awful lot to be happy about on, on these wonderful L's. I really hope so. Yeah. I do really hope so. So we spent six months there, and it was it was a lot of fun. I have to say, you know, we we had again a couple of managers who were lovely people, but uh, the the they the, they were very kind of traditional in the way that they split the kind of the operation of the business. So the Mister and the Misses, as they were referred to, which was nuts in itself. Um, <laughs> nobody ever knew. I didn't know their names. Uh, I couldn't tell you their names to this day. You know, it's only the Mister and the Misses, mm. and the Mister would look after the restaurant, and he would host, and he would be the smiling face, and the Misses would look after the reception and the administration. Uh, not such a smiling face, if I'm honest with you. He was, if I'm genuinely honest, he was drunk most of the time, um, which was cool. You know, he was living yeah. his best life. Yeah, he was. I think he was on the verge of retirement, so he was just doing his thing. But the upside there, again, is that they basically just stepped back and left us to kind of run this business. Right. And again, there's not you, you don't get opportunities like that every day. So yeah. it's really easy, again, you know, to kind of to look at the downsides when you've got people leading you like that and think, well, that's just not very good. But the upside is, is well, actually, now I get the chance to really step up here and, and learn some stuff that puts me ahead of myself and ahead of kind of the people around me uh, when it comes to kind of experience. So yeah. it was amazing, I have to say, a lot of fun. But at sort of 2021, you have a moment where you think, well, need some need a little bit more in my life because, you know, again, you know, like music has always been a really key part of my life. You know, as I said, I did some time DJing at kind of uh, Nottingham Rock City, huge alternative club, and I've, I've always been kind of left of centre musically, politically, kind of the whole kit, kit caboodle, to be fair. Yep. So really kind of missed all that. And I remember there was a, a, there was a defining moment where my, my brother and Sean, uh, he'd sent me a, a tape, a tape compilation. I mean, remember those days? Yes, yes. <laughs> Fondly. Uh, is it fondly? Beautiful. No, there's nothing fond about no, it, tapes. Is there? <laughs> no, it, 
no, but the effort that goes into producing that is absolutely. I, I hold that in, in great kind of great esteem because it's not like rattling up a playlist on Spotify. You've got to take time and effort to yeah. put a compilation tape. Did you ever um, record the charts on a Sunday? Of course. Yeah. I mean, oh, who, I mean, who wasn't breaking the law on a Sunday? Yeah. You, you haven't uh, lived, have you? If you're um, if you haven't tried to record the charts and get the timing right when they're just going to finish the song without getting the DJ's voice in the song. Um, that's that's the skill, well. isn't it? Yeah. That is the skill. That kids, is the skill. kids don't know that. No. Kids don't know that that talent. Absolutely. They'll get there one day, I'm sure. But um, yeah, he sent me a thing, and it was you know we'd he's my twin brother, and we'd we'd kind of we'd spent the first sort of 19 years of our lives in each other's pockets. We then kind of had a bit of a rouse. We were kind of growing into men, uh, and that was one of the reasons why actually why I went to Scotland. Um, but he sent me a, a tape, and the first track was the Chemical Brothers' uh, "Leave Home." Uh, I don't know if you know that track, but the the, the opening kind of soundbite of that track is the brothers going to work it out, and I'm like, yes, we are actually. Uh, and I hadn't spoken to him in a year by this point because obviously, you know, mobile phones, nope, internet, yeah. nope, yeah. email, nope, WhatsApp, no, nope. all of those things did not exist. So you kind of you lose contact for a, a, the space of a year with the person who I'd spent the first twenty odd years kind of seeing all day, pretty much every day. And that was a, a, a moment that said, yeah, we've got to go home now. So my wife and I, we picked up, we came back, we started running pubs, met probably one of the most influential managers and leaders in my life, actually, for me. Um, when we were doing that, you know, we went through the process of kind of interviewing with lots of pub companies because we knew that kind of actually there was a lot of fun to be had there. And uh, we wanted to sort of get, get, get on board with the pub business. So we had these seven interviews with various different pub companies, some really big ones, some really small ones. And the one that we thought that we probably wouldn't be that interested in was Scottish Newcastle because they were huge at the time and they were the monolith. And we were like, yeah, I don't really know. But we met in the interview, we met our, in the end, area manager, Mr. man called Alan Cole. And he was just, yeah, he was very, very cool. Mr. Cole was a former punk back in the day. You know, kind of, he'd spent his life, his formative years in Camden, living his best life uh, with a haircut that just was outrageous. Yep. And we got talking and we shared all that. And it was nice. It wasn't didn't feel like an interview. You know, we, we talked about kind of work and all that kind of stuff, but we talked about life as well. And that for me was probably one of the kind of the first times again where I thought, actually, an interview isn't just ticking boxes and kind of understanding what your skill set is. It's about, are we going to connect as people yeah and you as a you as a recruiter going to get your head around that massively i'm sure uh the the day that i woke up and realized that that was the case was the day i became a much better recruiter makes the world a difference yeah ironically it was uh, a little stint outside of uh, hospitality that taught me that because i, I did a, a stint uh, in the last crash in 2008-9 in an accounting focused recruitment firm and realized I was completely disconnected with it because the it was just about finding people that had XYZ skills on, mm-hmm. on their CV. And it was really pretty much not about culture fit and all yep. of that sort of stuff. And uh, that was the thing that really engaged me at the point that, one, I need to be back in hospitality recruiting. And two, actually marrying people together is is when sparks fly. It really is. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And that was... For us, that was the moment when when I met Mr. Cole and kind of just thought, yes. And then he said, oh, you've got to go meet the, the, the regional director. And I was like, oh, he's probably going to be disappointing. And his name was Alan as well, Alan Clegg. Sadly, both of them are no longer with us. But we met uh, we met Alan Clegg as well. And I was like, he's also really cool. My wife and I, both 
Both of these dudes are very cool. You know, this business is is seen as being a monolith, as being everybody's just a number. You know, you called somebody up at support office and you get them your house number. And I remember being told, no one cares about you there. You are just a number. And I met these two guys and I was like, that is just, that can't be real yeah. because they are not that. So for us, it was a really easy decision. You know, we very lucky, you know, interviewed for seven, we're offered five out of seven jobs. And it was about a 30 second conversation before we said, we're going to go, as long as you're our area manager, we're going to come and work for you. Yeah. And you picked that because you felt the connection to the human, right? As opposed exactly. to the, the business, I guess. The business itself, it was, you know, I knew, I knew it would be a good opportunity, but Mr. Cole was the thing that I just thought I could do. You, you, A, you could teach me things. And B, I reckon you're going to create a space for me to go ahead and just be the best version of me. And yeah. I, we were so right. That's that's what he did. So we took, we did all of our training. And oh my God, man, our training. We did our training in a place called The Fountain in Nottingham, which is no longer here. It's been absolutely, literally blown off the face of the planet, which is a beautiful thing. Right, And I think I remember being in the training. It was the first day of our kind of, we, we were kind of holding the business. We were at the end of our training element with them. And they said, right, you spend a week now where you're in control. And Monday morning, we're getting ready. And we're, we're both really excited. Hated the place, for honest with you. It was a towny hellhole. You know, you used to get headbutted on a regular basis as you're wandering around. But it was, was what it was. But we were like, yes, we're going to be taking control. And the first knock on the door at sort of 9.30 on the Monday morning was uh, a, a journalist. And we were like, okay. What do you want? And he was like, I'm from Panorama and uh, just want to tell you that we've done an ex- been recording and we've done an expose on uh, the behavior of the doorman in your business. We were like, whoa, now, hold it back. Holy Not moly. our business. Not our business. And he was like, well, you know, you're, you've just told me you're, the, you're in control. You're the manager. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me go and find somebody else. Wow. It was intense. I mean, Nottingham is a, is a hell of a place. And the doorman at the time were definitely kind of making their business uh, on the side as well as doing what they should be doing. Right. And, it, and that was traumatic. Uh, I was like, you know, this is not going to be the week I expected. My wife was just like, yeah, we should just step back a little bit and really <laughs> take care of this. This just seems like the answer, Kieran. You know, so we kind of, we've gone from this feeling of thinking, yes, we're in control to, oh my Christ, that's panorama. Yeah. How, that old? panorama. How old were you here at this point? Must have been 21. Yeah, so very, very young to get a, yeah, yeah. A, a knock on the door like that. It was traumatic. I'm not going to yeah. lie to you. So we, but that's we we did some training there. We did some training over in Northampton, and then ended up with our first pub in Arnold in Nottingham, little suburb. And our area manager had said to us, it had just come onto his area, and he said, "Oh, it's a, it's a." This is when craft beer was kind of new. So there was all the Belgian beers. It was a TNJ Bernard, and it's a brand that most people don't really remember, but. Scottish Newcastle had maybe 20 of them. Proper real ale house, lots of kind of continental beers. It was very cool in the scheme of things. And we were like, yeah, this is cool, actually. This is nice. Yeah. This is us. And then when we got there, realized really quickly that uh, Arnold was, uh, it's got about 50% of the people who were lovely and you'd want in your pub, and about 50% of the people who would try and stab you as soon as look at you. And uh, take yourself a guess as to which 50% of those people were coming into our pub at the, fir- at the time when we took it over. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I went through a lot of shirts that were covered in blood. My lots goodness. and lots of blood. Some of it mine, some of it other people's, but yeah. I kind of, we'd gone from making that decision of like, right, I need to look good. I need to look sharp as a manager. I need to set the tone, lead the example to thinking I'm going to spend three pounds 50 on a shirt from Tesco because it's not going to make it past the day because it was just going to get covered in somebody else's blood or my own. And yeah. It was intense. 
absolutely intense. That reminds me of, uh, I used to, way back in the beginning, just after I graduated from uni, I worked as a bartender at a holiday park called Haggerston Castle in Northumberland. Yep. Born Leisure. And I, I did quite well, actually, in quite a short space of time there, and so much so that they put me in charge of the uh, what they called the owner's bar. So that's everybody who owned a, a caravan. They had a separate bar as a kind of more private space. Yeah. And um, for whatever reason, a guy got in there that shouldn't have been in there, and he was absolutely smashed, basically. And I, t- I told him, I'm not serving you, not not in a million years. Always a fun moment. And um, he took a swing at me with the um, – he had a bottle of Budweiser in his hand and took a swing with the uh, the bottle of Budweiser. But for people who are kind of thinking, wow, that's that sounds really, really threatening – um, he missed me by easily two meters. He, <laughs> like he was so, that's how drunk he was. Uh, he was an early adopter on social distancing. That's for sure. <laughs> but he, that, that sort of threat that comes with alcohol is, it's always going to be there. Right. But you, you kind of either embrace it or uh, go and work somewhere else. I think it teaches you resilience as well, if I'm honest with you. You know, it kind of For sure. life's hard and we just have to suck it up sometimes. I mean, I, I remember the first time, I, I again, one of the early lessons was the people who talk about coming to stab you and kill you are the people who are not going to do it. You know, they are just going to talk about it. The ones you should be worried about, yeah. the ones who sit in the corner quietly, nursing a drink and staring at you and looking you up and down. Watch those people. Because I remember this guy kind of just, his name was, uh, I probably shouldn't say his name. Actually, I think he's dead now. Um his name was uh, Lightfoot, and he was nuts, again, totally off his trolley. And I remember him kind of leaning into me as I was kind of saying to him, look, I'm not going to serve you at this point. And I remember everybody in the pub looking around going, just don't do not do that, Kieran, because he is going to kill you. This guy, he is dangerous. And I'm like, but you are drunk and you're scaring everybody. You know, you're making people uncomfortable. Nobody really knows what you're going to do. And, uh, yeah, I'm not going to serve you. And he just kind of leaned into me and said, I will come to you tonight. And I will stand over you as you are asleep. And what the first thing you will know is that I'm writing my name into your forehead with a razor blade. And I'm like, lovely. Okay. Sounds like a lovely guy. Hey, he was a delight. Um, (laughs) But being a a, a smart aleck that I am, I just kind of said, so who's going to teach you how to spell my name? Because that O rather than an A just irritates me. And I just just needed (laughs) to be right. And he didn't kill me at that point. And I thought, well, he's not going to do it. Because if he was, he was going to do it now. You know, he kind of, yeah. he was there. But, you know, that moment of just thinking, right, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to set the standard. I'm going to set the bar of what's acceptable in this business. And I'm going to have to take the consequences to deal with it. And we did. And and it was successful. But happily, Mr. Cole kind of just went, you know what, uh, you've done a great job, but that's not really for you, is it? You know, I've got this other pub that's coming onto the area. Do you know it? And it's called The Angel, The Old Angel. And and I'd drunk in The Old Angel when I was about 15. Uh, certainly far too young. Certainly far too young. That tells you a lot. Exactly, you see. But it was yeah. a great business. Again, it was kind of, it's very cool. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. We'll take it. And my wife was like, you sure, Kieran? I was like, we're, yeah, yeah, we're doing this. These people want to kill me every day, you know, because we'd gotten to the point where I'd said to my wife, right, you look after the daytime when the kind of nice people are in. We've got the food offering and that's working well. And I'll look after the nighttime when the raging maniacs want to start killing people. And uh, you just watch the CCTV. And if it looks like it's getting out of hand, you call the police. And we got to the point where we're like, this is quite stressful now. So let's change that. So we went to the Angel and it was at a time when pubs were being taken back from tenancies into the managed estate. Right. And the tenant really did have the ump about that because he'd kind of done some good work with it. I'm like, 
if you looked at the books, he was doing nothing. But in reality, I knew full well that he was absolutely smashing it. So he obviously was running two tills at one point. But he stripped everything out from, I mean, everything. Speakers, PA, electronics. He even took up the floorboards in the bar. And I'm like, dude, that's that's extreme. Uh, and I remember him saying, I put those in there so they're coming with me. I'm like, okay. So the first day we got it and we got the keys and we walked in. Uh, Karen and I were both really excited. And we went down the night before and looked through the window and phoned up Mr. Cole and said, excuse me, uh, Mr. Cole. Uh, and he said, yeah, what what do you want? Uh, I'm seeing you tomorrow. I'm like, yeah, you're going to need to bring some workmen tomorrow, mate, because he's taken every single light out of the place. There's no light switches. There's no light, no light fittings. There's no floorboards. And he was like, you are joking me. My God. Guy really took exception. Yeah, he really did. But it, yeah. It was a moment that was where you think, well, actually, again, so well, now we get to define this and make it what we want it to be. So we literally, that for that business, did exactly as we pleased. It was amazing. You know, from we, we stripped it back, took it back to its bare minimum. You know, we kind of, we put in an amazing jukebox eventually because initially, you know, when a pubs used to have jukeboxes that were supplied by kind of those entertainment companies and you'd get a kind of an evolution of discs that would come through every every sort of week. Yeah. <laughs> there was a moment where Candle in the Wind came through and they tried to fit it in my jukebox and I was like, no, just no. You know, this, yeah. this, there, no, cannot be. You know, at this point, I've got nose piercings, I've got a librette piercing, I've got my hair down my back. Every single person who was in that place looked at a version of that. I was like, if I put that on this jukebox, they're going to set fire to it. Let's be clear. Yeah. <laughs> no. So we kind of persuaded Mr. Combs, and this is Scotch and Newcastle, who were very, very tight on kind of controlling the business and not high on trust, if I'm honest with you. They didn't begin believing in beginning with trust. And, and if you lost it, you lost it. They believed in you need to earn trust. So to get them to install a jukebox that we had control over was actually quite a big deal. But Mr. Cole did it. And we set up a partnerships with record record shops nearby with HMV and they would supply. We even got to the point where our customers were bringing in their own CDs to put in the jukebox and then they would pay to play and listen to their own CDs. I mean, that's genius. That's yeah. in itself. I mean, every time when I would just look around on a Saturday night and thinking, I didn't pay for that CD that's playing right now. Somebody else has. And these people are paying to listen to it. Amazing. And it went from yeah. a jukebox doing about 20 quid a week tops, which was seen as being quite a reasonable return on the jukebox, to actually being, I think we were doing about 200 quid a week on a jukebox in the end. And that's just from having great quality music and, and recognizing what your customers wanted and just delivering on their expectations. That's mm. it. And that was one of the first yeah. moments again where I just thought, you know what, actually, this isn't hard. What do the people want? How do I, what, what's my best way of delivering on what their expectation is? And that was a really good example of kind of how that could work. Yeah. And so when I think about kind of early leaders and people that, people that I would, I would call as mentors over the years, Mr. Cole would absolutely be it. You know, I'd quite often over the years, I would go back and think, what would Alan do? You know, that was it. And I remember kind of hearing that he died and just being, just devastated really because he was just he was just a really good guy you know and he's like he had loads of cool stories i remember him telling me once how he'd kind of when he lived in camden he was living with his first wife and she wanted him to buy her a monkey and i was like like and he was a proper cockney and i was like you mean like a monkey are we talking money and he's like no mate she wanted a monkey I was like, okay. He's like, so I bought a monkey. He's, and then he reels off this story about how this monkey's running all around this pub that they've got. And I'm like, mate, just amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. But uh, the um, the best mentors just get that balance right, don't they? I mean, of of 
being able to guide you and kind of nudge you in the right direction, but also give you enough rope for you know, for you to go and hang yourself yeah. with, basically, and and be comfortable doing that. That's the, the point. Is that you know that ultimately, if you get something wrong, that's when you take the learning. And the best leaders, I think, really know that and and really you know almost encourage the next generation coming through to to go and experience and make wrong choices and you know, but just take the learning and make sure you're moving forward well those those tough choices they're the ones where you're going to get the best learning there's no getting around it yeah and i, I remember he would frequently when when we i mean we were still young at this point we were like we're still 21 going on 22 got control of a business that was taking sort of 15 20k a week in a tough city center that actually wasn't the most challenging for us because ours was like a proper little community pub in the city center and everybody kind of knew each other. Mm. But he would always just say, your business, your choice, what do you want to do? Just make good choices. You know, make sure it's make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. Is it going to make your customers' experience better? Is it going to make kind of the environment better? Yes. Okay, well let's get it done then. And I just yeah, that was that was revolutionary for me to be honest with you. And kind of I will always go back to that. And whenever I was kind of teaching and training other people over the years, then I would always be keeping that as my mindset. It's like, what's what? Why do you want to do this? What's the purpose? Is it for good? Do you want to make a, a, an improvement? If the answer is yes, let's give it a go and see what happens. And we did some stuff in that place. You know, I, I eventually I, I persuaded them to put back in. It was a live venue back in the day, and, uh, and I persuaded them to put in a new stage and a new PA. And we had to get a fire escape because laws were laws and all that kind of stuff. And we had this great room that would hold about 125 people. But at that point, it was licensed for 32, which is a big dinner party at best um, yeah. because it had only one one means of escape. So we ripped down this garage, um, which in itself was reckless because, uh, again, we did that ourselves. So we didn't get kind of experts in. We just knocked it down, um, which, again, felt like the smartest and fastest choice until we worked out that it got asbestos in the roof which we, we we learned a lesson at that point about how you manage asbestos um yes <laughs> so we did that and then we got them to install a the fire escape and i remember the kind of the the md of scotch and newcastle just going huh so you're the founder of the most expensive fire escape i've ever paid for i'm like yes yes that is us because they started off thinking they were going to put five grand into building a fire escape. And by the time we're done, we persuaded them to spend 100K in installing this uh, full-on light show, full-on uh, sound system, uh, and just absolutely made it what it should be. And we did some amazing gigs. You know, I love live music. Um, I was actually just talking about one the other day. Uh, just uh, There's a band called Caius. Now, they're not hugely well-known, but they within their circle, they are legends. And... They came and in one of their reformations as a band called Unida, and they were on tour. And one of our guys, our regular guys, was a sound engineer for them. And they had a day off in Nottingham, and there was the England-Scotland football game on in one of the World Cups. Um, we had this guy called Fakir Bone doing a show who was – you remember Jim Rose Circus Sideshow? Do you remember that? I can't say it. I do. They did really dark things to themselves. Like they would stick nails in places where nails shouldn't be. They would get hit in the face with concrete blocks. There was also so it was like a pre- a preempt to jackass. Yeah, very much so. Very, very yeah, much. So. Right. Okay. And he took his art. It, for him, it was art. He took it very seriously, um, and he was amazing. So we had on this day we had these guys, Unida, uh, who's you know their their first six albums as Caius were all on our jukebox. And I remember them sitting there drinking Guinness and getting absolutely lathered, listening to this music, and uh, all of their own music was on there. Nobody was really kind of aware that these guys were here, um, but every now and again people would recognise the kind of the singer. Like, is that 
Is that John Garcia? I'm like, yeah, it is. Leave him alone. Just he's just doing his thing. And they got absolutely hammered. They were supposed to be having a day off. We watched the football. It was loud. It was insane. We did the Fakir thing, and then we just kind of said, "Should we just do a gig now? Do you want to set up and play?" And they were absolutely trolled by this point. I remember the bass player throwing up over the back of the fire escape, going, "Yeah, man, let's do it." I'm like, "Yeah, let's do it then. Let's let's do that." <laughs> so, like, where's you? Where's your gear? Oh, it's over at Rock City, right? So we're going through Nottingham City Centre on a Saturday night at about ten thirty, wheeling this kind of bass cab, which is called an Ampeg, which is the biggest thing you will ever see in your life, wheeling it through the city centre, thinking this is going to be amazing. Got them set up, got them loaded in. Did the, did the show. There was about 50 people just, and again, pre-internet. So loads of people just trying to get all their friends and stuff out there and say, look, you need her about to play. It's Caius, it's John Garcia. And they were amazing. And it was just, you know, I had the best time in that place. It was just so much fun. Yeah. But I think about kind of the curse of that place was probably the kind of the absolute joy of it because, because I had such a good time. I probably stayed too long, if I'm honest with you. Um, I, right. should, I should have moved on sooner and really just kind of, progress my career faster i guess if i'm honest but i just had the most amazing time and well, obviously, there's a lot to be said for that as well well there really is and i you know i had a lot of my friends working there my brother worked there we just had the most um, amazing kind of events company that we set up so me and one of my old friends a guy called dan again sadly no longer with us but dan and i set up this thing pristine where we would do events we would do um promotions and tour promotions both in there, but then all over the country, which then led on to some tour management. So you've got all these bands coming over who just, again, didn't know their arse on their elbow. Um, and they just basically wanted to be told where to be on what day, at what time, and when should I go and play this time? Go and do that. And then just try yeah. and make sure they didn't kill themselves in the meantime between shows, which is quite a skill. You know, it's like herding very, very drunk, angry children a lot of the time. Um, and you're not allowed to hit them, apparently. So I had to yeah. use, use those kind of persuasion skills, I guess, was the thing. But it was an amazing time, but I probably should have moved on sooner. Um, when I did, you know, I kind of went off and thought, you know, this world is changing, this world of freedom and liberation of if I want to change the walls, the colour, if I want to change the decoration, the menu, anything, I could do that but I knew that that was going to be moving away. And so I went to go and work for Costa Coffee because they are the kind of the brand right now that if I can work for those people without going postal, then I know that I'm going to be able to make a career out of this. And uh, and I did a year actually and just worked out that brands, you know, if you allow them to be, to, to feel oppressive and to kind of, to really kind of hold and contain your creativity, then they will do that for you. But if you kind of put your head into the game and think, right, brand guidelines, brand filter, decision making has to be, everything has to go through that filter, then happy days. Yeah. You can be successful. And had a great time there, but it was very easy, if I'm honest. You know, I got very bored, you know, so moved on, went to Hard Rock, had the best time ever at Hard Rock. Hard Rock was yeah. the corporate version of the old angel. It was the 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 the, the man versus the, uh, the 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 boy, I guess we were. But um, yeah. yeah, great. And Hard Rock made a difference to me. You know, you think about the kind of the mindset, the culture, the kind of the ethos, all of that stuff just stayed. You know, and if I think about kind of think about the kind of the business again that probably had a big impact on me. I was only there for like a year, year and a half. But that had a huge impact, you know, going in and running the back of house uh, for um, Hyde Park Calling and just standing there kind of screaming, 
You know, the, 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 the hard rock call for servers was rock and roll, obviously. If I wanted servers to run food from the past, I would scream rock and roll at the top of my voice. And I remember it was just amazing. And I remember yeah. doing that in Hyde Park whilst Chris Cornell was on stage singing his little heart out. And I'm thinking, could my life be any better right now? I don't know. Yeah. Well, and him as well. I mean, that, that may rest in peace, but what a talent. Just. That guy was. Just incredible. I mean, Soundgarden yeah. were just, they were one of my bands, one of my, I mean, Bad, Bad Motorfinger was the one that really made you think, wow, this guy's got it and he's talented. And I remember standing yeah. there in that field thinking, this is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. I'm doing the two things that I love the most. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm making people happy with hospitality, but I'm listening to the most amazing music that I could possibly have. And it was great. Yeah. It was hard. <laughs> it was really hard. And I remember yeah. racking up to the Cumberland Hotel when it had finished on, on the Monday morning. And the Cumberland was quite a nice hotel. And a lot of folks from Dubai and the Emirates would come and stay there. And uh, they would be extremely wealthy. And I remember kind of seeing these folks looking at kind of all of the hard rockers just kind of dotted around the reception, the breakfast room, just knackered by sort of yeah. Monday. And that you could see them thinking, this is not what I signed up for. You know, we're here for a nice, lovely hotel. What are all mm. these people doing here? And it's just like anything they want right now because all of them have just busted their backsides to give 60,000 people the best time ever. And that was just joyous. Just yeah. joyous. You know, the the irony around the Cumberland Hotel mm -hmm. is that it's now a hard rock Ex hotel. Exactly. I mean, it made perfect yeah. sense. You know, I stayed yeah. there a few years ago. I remember thinking... This needs something, and then I read that it was being. Brought. I was like, ah, uh, yes. We, I was in there actually uh, six months ago, and did some meetings from there from from the room. It was just like, this is fabulous. This is just so nice, absolutely yeah. amazing. But uh, nice to be in amongst that. So hard rock was ace. You know, kind of some lessons, some uh, again about how we deal with people. Um, absolutely key. Spent very lucky to go and spend some time over in Orlando. And did some kind of rock 101 stuff where it's the, the full-on kind of indoctrination into the hard rock way. Uh, and I remember this dude in my session, he was an American youth. can't remember where he was from, but uh, I remember him coming back one night after a night out and he got a hard rock tattoo. And I was like, wow, I mean, you've really invested into this brand, haven't you, big man? And he was like, yeah, man, I love it. I love it. I'm like, cool. Uh, whatever makes you happy, dude. You know, if that's bringing yeah. you joy in your life. He's like, you should do it too. And I was like, I'm probably not going to do that. You know, I love this place. It's a cool place, but I'm not getting a tattoo. Not for not for hard rock, unless they're going to give me a lot of money. But no one was willing to do that. But it was amazing, you know. And just I spent some time doing some uh, sessions with Jim Knight, um, who is just what his book Cultured at Rocks is one of my favorite books. That I gift and gift and gift, and I think I've given maybe ten copies away over the years because it's just it's on point and it's written in a way that just connects with people and connects with what makes people smile. Um, yeah, and he is he's well. Hell of a dude. I, um, I'm chatting to him tomorrow on uh, on the podcast. Oh, you I, should have the best time. <laughs> wait, you're gonna have the best yeah. time. You really are. Yeah, well, I, I, there's a guy who is absolutely doing what he was born to do. Right? I mean, his um, his energy and enthusiasm to to his cause is just it's just really addictive. It's outstanding, is what it is. And to just be yeah. in the presence of it is just like, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. And I and I think about kind of you think as as time goes, you go through your career. You're thinking about kind of where you've picked up certain things, you know. And I'm, I'm very lucky that I get to spend a lot of my time now, kind of facilitating learning for different people. And watching the way Jim delivered that Rock 101 session was an absolutely kind of kick in the backside to me. That said, this is what good training should look like. 
that's this. It should look like this. Somebody who cares, somebody who's passionate, yeah. somebody who is 100% in it, who's not playing games. He is just in it to win it every day. And he believes what he's saying. This is truth. Yeah. And that, for me, was amazing. So you're going to have a great chat with Jim. Um, read his book. Listen to the audio book. Um, it's just, yeah, it's it's a winner. But yeah. that's the that was the thing about Hard Rock, the culture, and it kind of carried through. And it was one of the lessons, again, that I stick back and think, yeah, I'm, I'm going to... Everywhere I go, I'm going to create something like that. Not that, because that was them. That was what was key to them. But I'm going to make sure that every business I have and every business I'm responsible for, every corner of the world that is mine, I'm going to make sure that people will be able to define the culture of that business and of that team. So I spent yeah. some good time with those guys. Um, then spent five years with Wagamama, which was, again, it was ace. They were very cool. People, again, I guess, you know, I, I met the area manager, Alistair, um, and I'd met him about a year before, actually, when I was joining Hard Rock. And he was recruiting for Nottingham at the time. And he decided, I remember him saying, oh, we've decided to go internal uh, and we're going to promote something. And I was like, well, that sucks for me, but it's good that you're doing that, actually. I, I like that. That's good. And then sort of 12 months later, he came back and he said, oh, I told you I was going to forget about you. And I was like, how could you? How could you forget about me, man? You know, I mean, look at me. I just, <laughs> I'm just, I'm interested. Uh, I'm not. Um, <laughs> but he was like, "Yep, yeah, I haven't forgotten." He's like, "So we're going to open this site in Leicester, and I, I want you to come and do it because Leicester's well, Leicester's Leicester, uh, so he's going to need somebody who's got a bit of character and a bit of personality to kind of to impose himself on it, uh, and it's potentially going to be very, very busy because they create." The, in Leicester, I don't know if you know Leicester, but they had a little shopping centre called the Shires, and it was the most depressing place you'd ever been in your life. It was old, it was tired, and then they refurbished it, and it's now high, the High Cross, which is beautiful. And they've made it stunning, right. and they've got this whole kind of outside seating area called St. Peter's Square. Wagga was one of the first restaurants to open on there. There was Us, there was Nando's, Yo Sushi, and the Handmade Burger Company. And one of the happiest moments of my day on opening day was... Probably wasn't the first two hours because nobody came. And I was like, this is scary. We're supposed to be really busy now. And the ops, the ops manager, the opening manager, Amanda was like, no, Kieran, trust me, you'll be fine. Like, okay. And then around midday, they just the queue formed wow. and did not stop from that entire day until 11 o'clock. And one of the happiest moments when the lady from Yo Sushi, who was really sweet, uh, came and said, um, excuse me, I'm, I'm not sure of your name. It's, it's Kieran. Yeah, it's Kieran. Would you mind uh, terribly moving your queue, please? Because, well, it's it's blocking our door. And I'm looking and thinking, you're nice and I like you. But why are you failing at this moment? Because she shouldn't have been in that talking to me nicely and saying, would you mind blocking your or moving your queue? What she should have been doing was having a team out there giving samples of her amazing food because Yo Sushi make tasty food and running down that queue and saying, oh, you, you're waiting to get in there? Well, you can come to us now. And I remember thinking, yep. that's really weak. You're nice. But that's really weak. I would be taking that as an opportunity. And I think, again, when you think about life lessons as, as they've gone by, see the opportunities when they're presented to you. So for me, I just said, you know what? I'll do my best. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to get them in and out as quickly as I can do. And at that time, Wagger's turning time was probably 34, 35 minutes for a table turn, which is insane okay. in most restaurants. Yeah. Um, so we were like, look, we're going we're gonna to do this. And we killed it. We absolutely, my team were amazing that day. And these people, most of them had never worked in a restaurant in their life. You know, I was so lucky. I had a head chef, Tom Border, who is just 
Tom Tom was outstanding. That man knew what work was and was comfortable to put it in, but he also knew what great food should look like. And the whole team, we just we just went at it, and it was amazing. It didn't stop for about six months, really, at that peak level. Um, and then a few more restaurants opened. It kind of did its thing. I got lucky. They said, you know what? Do you want to come and uh, look after Meadow Hall? Because that's just been refurbished, and it's a bit of a disaster, if I'm honest with you. Well, okay, what's the problem? There's no one's coming. I was like, okay, that's, that's a problem. Um, Wandered through, saw it, and it was next to the third busiest McDonald's in Europe, uh, which is always an indicator that you may have got your location wrong, in my mind, I'll be honest with you. And it did about nine grand the first week. I mean, that's not a good Saturday in most businesses. So this place was 254 covers, and it had been recruited for 254 cover restaurants. Um, It had a double kitchen. Uh, It was beautiful. It was so, so well laid out. It was amazing but nobody came because it was so pretty. And I remember I spent the first three weeks sitting outside saying, when watching people and I would see them look at the menu and think, oh, that's quite cool. And then they'd kind of poke their head in the door and think, mm, actually, don't know, not sure. So I was just kind of said, what, what's uh, what's stopping you from taking the step? And they said, oh, it just feels like it's probably a, like a really special occasion type of thing. I'm like, okay. It's not, you know. They were like, but it, it's so beautiful. It's so lovely. It looks like a furniture where, for furniture shop. And they created this place that was just so, so nice. And it won awards. The entrance was beautiful. It won awards for an entrance, which yeah. tells you the work they put into it. And I remember talking to, to Glenn House, who was the ops director at the time. He's now MD of uh, Cafe Nero. And I remember him saying, Kieran, what, what would you do to make this better? And I said, um, see that end, that wall there? He said, yep. I said, uh, let's smash it out and put a big hole there. He's like, Kieran, this is uh, this is a brand new restaurant. We've put loads of time and money into building this restaurant. It's beautiful. It's won awards. I was like, yeah, but no one wants to come in. So let's just smash a bloody big hole in the end there, and I will have somebody there 24-7. And initially, it will be me, and I will engage with every person who walks past, and I will make sure that they will come through. And if they don't, I've personally failed. And that's where, I, again, I started to get a bit kind of brave because I would stand on that door and say, come try it out. Tell me on there, what 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 do you enjoy? What do you like? And they would tell me about the food that they liked, if they like chicken, if they like seafood, if they like spicy food. And I would be able to reel off dishes and say, look, come and give it a go. And it got to the point where I was like, look, if you don't love it, I'll pay for your dinner. It's on me. And they would look at me and I said, no, no, honestly. I said, this, this is the face of a trustworthy young man. Honestly, my mother brought me up the right way. I said, so if you don't love it, I said, but however, I said, you need to know. I will know. I will be able to tell if you're lying to me just for the sake of a free meal. And if you do that, we will fall out. So but if you go in there and eat and you don't love it, then it's on me. And that's that was the that was the start of the turnaround. And it was just connecting with the community in that way. And just talking to them in a language that made sense to them rather than this big, beautiful restaurant that was outstanding. It was yeah. it was astonishing. Who'd have thought, eh? And a little bit of education and um and you can just transform perception. It's, I mean it's rocket science. <laughs> Mensa were, Mensa were knocking on my door at the time for me to come and join them. I mean, they, they looked at me and said, Kieran, you're so smart. How did, how did you work this out? Nobody else did that. No, Mensa have never knocked on my door because I am not that smart. As you say, it's not complicated, is yeah. it? It's just connect. Understand your menu. Understand your offer. Be bold and be brave and just kind of say, look, come and do that. And I've then spent the rest of my life thinking, bold and brave, that's the answer. And it's just 
and it's worked. It has absolutely worked. And I've put that into action in so many ways, you know, it can have a huge impact on your kind of on your customer experience. You gamble with them a little bit. I remember I used, I, used, I, I ran a, uh, a world buffet restaurant, which was just, wow. I remember when they came and spoke to me about coming to run, I was like, it's a buffet restaurant. Um, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And they came back again six months later and were like, no, no, this is cool. We've got a vision. It's just been brought out. And so it was brought out by uh, Risk Capital Partners, who is Luke Johnson, um, yep. obviously kind of uh, who's uh, had his ups and his downs, but very smart guy. And I was like, so Luke Johnson's bought it. Hmm, that's interesting. And then I met James Haller for the first time. And James, I don't know if you've ever met James Haller, who's the founder of Ego. I haven't, uh, no. He did a huge, he, he's amazing. And he's such a he's he's a he's a he's a top boy. That's the only way to describe him. And I remember talking to him and just sort of telling him what I would want to do. And he just said, "Amazing, let's do this." And he's so excitable and so enthusiastic. But my God, his memory for numbers is terrifying. Really, you couldn't have a conversation about a PL. Do not do it unless you know your numbers inside and out. Because he was just steel trap like. So I met him, I met Eddie, my ops director at the time, and Eddie, Eddie Passy, who is just, again, is one of those guys who you can think back to, who kind of, who you get and who you connect with and who you really kind of think, yes, I could work with you on a daily basis because you understand. And Eddie knew that I was going to be hard work and he accepted that. He's like, you are just a bit of a pain in the backside, aren't you, mate? And I said, yes, I am. Again, it goes back to that knowing yourself yep. and owning yourself. I said, so if you're okay with that and I'm okay with that, we'll be cool and we'll do some difference. And we, we had a good time. And I remember going back to that kind of gambling thing. I remember kind of standing, it was a busy afternoon and this place would, it was 523 covers, 26,000 square feet. Uh, on a Saturday, we could easily take 30K net, which is just crazy. And I remember kind of this guy, he was, I'd had some fun with him at his table uh, and he was with a big table. There was a few of them. So their bill was about 200 quid and he was a, he was a lovely fella. And I, I was feeling good about life. I knew that we'd just, we were going to smash the day. And I said, so uh, should we gamble for your bill? As we as he came down to pay and he was like, what? I was like, should we gamble? And he's looking at me and he's like, hey, have you lost your mind? He's like, do you even know what my bill is? I was like, £228.32. And he was like, hmm, so you do. He's like, what's the bet? I said, we'll just do best of three. We'll flip a coin. And he was like, okay. He said, so how does it work? I said, well, it will be very simple. I said, if you win, if you win the best of three, you don't pay a bill. If uh, if I win the best of three, you pay the bill and you tip my team handsomely for the great service they've given you. And he was like, okay. He was like, do you decide what the tip will be? I said, no, no, your conscience will do that for you because you know they've been cool. And he was like, right. So there's this, there's this moment where he's like, First of all, is this guy crazy? Secondly, does he actually work here? Does he have the power to be doing this? And thirdly, why is he not flipping a coin right now? Why? Start flipping the coin. So I'm, we're there. And you get to this point now where there's, there's people starting to pay attention because it's a big bill and it's a busy place and we're right in the doorway. And there's, there's, there's people now starting to watch this. And my team are looking at this thinking, oh, no, he's doing it again. He's doing it again. <laughs> and the management were like, oh, God, let's just leave him to it. And then my, my, my floor team were like, this is just too fun not to watch. And I, I'm a bit of a gobshite. So I like, I like a bit of drama. And I, I'm flipping this coin and kind of, and I'm taking it slow. And I'm doing the whole Simon Cowell kind of thing. And I'm doing the whole Chris Tarrant. Are you sure that you want to go ahead? Yes. Are you sure? Like, yeah, yeah. I was like, are you no, no, I'm not sure. Uh, and he's double checking the coin to make sure it's not like double sided. All of that stuff. 
And he got to the point where kind of he won the first one. I'm like, oh, this is exciting. You've won the first one. And he was like, oh, no. And he, he started to get a bit of a sweat on that. And then I win the second one. I'm like, oh, dude, oh, you're so close yet. You're so far. And I'm like, we're, we're at this moment, there's kind of, there's probably about 50 people watching this from their seats. And kind of my team are kind of close thinking, oh, no, he's going to cost us money. And this guy's now sweating. He's now it's 50-50. He knows now he's literally he's on the cusp of like being the, 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 the victor who goes home to his family and says, family, I have provided lunch for free because this man is a fool who gambled with me and I won. <laughs> so we get to this third and I flip the coin. And, as, and it's, it's, like, it's like every kind of bad movie you've ever seen where the coin just slows down in midair and we make eye contact through the coin. The coin drops onto my hand and he is literally, he's kind of like, show me the coin, Kieran. And I'm like, are you feeling lucky? And he's like, show me the coin, Kieran. I'm like, dude, I'm going to have some fun here. This is making me smile because I'm on the cusp of picking up your bill. So I've got to enjoy this moment. And we flip the coin. I say, heads or tails. And I won. <laughs> hey. He was looking at me and the poor guy was devastated. I'm like, oh, dude, I feel for you now. So I bought him a round of drinks and sent him on his way. And he was like, mate, you are crazy. I'm like, I will see you again next week. And he was like, you'll see me. You'll see my brother. You will see my mother. We will be back. Yeah, you've just created an experience for him, haven't you? That's the um, the the thing. And now you've created an experience for me as well, because all I can get, all I have in my brain now is that scene of the final coin flick. And I feel like it, it is a movie and I feel like you're played by Will Ferrell and he's played by Jim Carrey and there's going to be fireworks. And, yeah. There was fireworks in my head. I know yeah. that. When that coin landed on my hand, there were fireworks, there was explosions, there was carnage going on around me. But yeah, just me and him in that moment, just sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Yeah. And I was very comfortable with the fact, you know, what? I was, I'm going to pick up your bill. I'm, I'm cool with that. It's fine. And I was telling James about it, James Haller, and he's looking at me, he's like, Kieran, you've got to stop doing that. He's like, what happens if you would have won? I said, then we would have picked up his tab, James, but we made 30K that day, so would you have cared? And he was like, no, nah, probably not. I was like, exactly. And you wouldn't have cared because you know it's right, because as you've just said, we are creating memories, and that is it. That's what we get to do in this business, in this industry. Yep. We get to make memories for people that they will walk away with, and they will sit, and they will hold on to. And at this moment in time when nobody can go out and nobody can go and get involved in the things that they would do normally, all they've got is their memories of the businesses that they've been in, the restaurants, the people that they've connected with. So yeah, if we can create magnificent ones that they can hold for some time until the next time they get to walk back through our door, then we've done our job and we've done it well. Absolutely. That actually um, leads me on nicely to a line that you've got on your Twitter profile. The only hunting I believe in is of amazing experiences and hospitality. I really loved that. I thought that's a, it's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it, it ticks my two favorite things. I love animals, and uh, if I find a, a, a anybody wants to do them harm, I will do them harm personally. But I love the idea that we get to just we get to sit with people forever and a day. That guy, he he won't know he won't know my name, but he'll remember that feeling, and yep. he'll remember that moment. And the other people who are watching, who are thinking, next time I might get it, I might get the crazy guy. I might get to gamble for my bill, and I, I reckon I fancy my chances. They're all a part of that moment, and that is the joy of it. And we get to do that in so many ways. And you know, it just—it's key. It's absolutely key, and it's always been 
the driver for me over the years, you know, and it comes back to Mr. Cole saying, your business, your choice. Is it the right thing for the business? Is it the right thing for your customer? Is it the right thing for you? And if you could put those three kind of those three things together and say, yes, it is, then why wouldn't I make that choice? Why wouldn't I take that step and deliver on it? Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's joyous, really. It is joyous. I mean, I, I guess I've just spent the last hour talking and kind of made it sound like it was always amazing. It wasn't always amazing. You know what? You know, those moments when success came and, and life was good, you know, a younger version of me was a bit of a dick. I'm not going to lie to you. I could be a, a very arrogant little man. There's no getting around that at all. That's and, all part of the learning experience as well, though. Exactly. And there are some key points where you have to kind of to go back and think, well, actually, was that the, the better choice? And I remember well, we were really lucky. We won an award for the Publican Awards and Bob Monkhouse, who I just didn't think was very funny. But actually, when he presented the award, I was like, you are just I'm giving you I'm giving you props now, Bob, because you are absolutely gold. So Bob presents this award. And I remember winning this award and thinking this is amazing. And one of the jobs that we'd left um, or, or kind of been a part in, uh, it wasn't great. And. One of the people was was there in that award room that night, and they tried to talk to me, and they were just I was just really arrogant that night with the, and i i I just brushed them off with a sense of just like, and yes, I was right, you were wrong, idiot, but actually that was ridiculous, you know yeah. and I, that that's like twenty years ago, but it still stays with me that actually when I reflect on that, I'm not proud of myself for that moment, I'm not proud of myself, the fact that they reached out to say, you know what, we were wrong, sorry. And I, I should have just accepted that. So we learn those lessons as we go by. And it's just one of, again, you know, there's books that I've gone back to over and over and over the years. And there's one that's kind of, that's called the no asshole rule. And it's kind of surviving and kind of avoiding working in a toxic workplace. And I'm really lucky that I haven't worked in many kind of toxic workplaces. I've had brief moments where I think this is atrocious, but how do you, how do you avoid being that person? And for me, that's really key. And the biggest part of that was to kind of containing that ego and just not being just the raging cretin. And, yeah. you know, I, I had moments where I was, you know, my, my brother my, was is really useful to tell me when I'm being like that. My wife is ace. My mum used to be amazing because she, well, she just didn't care. She was like, Kieran, if you've been a dick, I'm going to tell you you've been a dick. We had a very kind of open relationship in, in our family. You know, it's kind of, we tell each other exactly what it needs to be, whether it's good, bad or ugly. Shows you the importance of the the company you keep though you know if you if you surrounding yourself with people who you know who mean well and and who are you know i suppose you're yin to your yang then they're they're keeping you in check keeping you humble keeping you on the straight and narrow but if you were surrounded by people who are you know looking to cause distress to people then maybe you become one of them as well it's um easily yeah very easily yeah that's quite I can't get through a podcast without going into some kind of deep philosophical nonsense. But um, but anyway, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's and it's absolutely right. You know, kind of the people around the people that you keep the company of they they give you permission to behave in a certain way. If you are surrounded by the wrong people, then you are given permission to behave in a way that is inappropriate and that just doesn't serve any real positive purpose. And yeah. We should all be looking to make a positive difference in the world that we live in every single day. Yeah. You know, I think about kind of, I was looking through your list of kind of questions and points and thinking kind of what you're proudest of. Well, I think the thing I'm proudest of is, is actually the people, you know, I think back to the people that have kind of come through my ranks and, and developed and grown who started out as team members, who started out as line chefs, who started out as front of house hosts and servers who became the most astonishing managers. Well, that's they're, 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 that's the thing that I'm proudest of because 
I, I am very lucky that I get to influence their behavior. We in hospitality, we are very lucky because we get we get people when they're young and we get them when they're forming as adults. And maybe those people haven't always had the best kind of family lives and home lives and haven't always had the strongest influences on them. So maybe we get to be that strong influence yep. and we help them, give them the chance to really kind of grow into something more than they are expected to be. You know, the boy Bailey, that's where it kind of comes from. It comes from the feeling of just being told, just get a job, just get a job and do that. You know, don't worry about a career. Don't worry about kind of trying to become more than you should be. Just get a job. Well, that's a, a stunning example of a kind of fixed mindset of just accepting what is there, accepting what's been laid out for you. And that's your path. And I refuse to accept that. And I refuse to have the people around me just kind of think, yeah, that's cool. Now, look beyond, look above and think, what can I do more? What's it going to take for me to step out of this kind of this frame that's been defined for me? And I've some of the people who've come from my ranks, I just, you know, I, I speak to them on, even now on a daily basis. And I'm just so proud of what they've achieved. You know, there, yeah. there are some exceptional people. Tom Border, uh, I mentioned him, Wagamama head chef. I spoke to him on Friday. He called me up on Friday. He's now working uh, for Booper, and he works in their care home business. And he, the way he was talking about the care that they are giving people right now and the way that he's inspiring his team to push harder at a time that is tough uh, and challenging for them, I was just like, damn, that's, 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 that's Tom now. Now, if you would have said to anybody who knew Tom when he was 20 that that was the person he was going to become, they would have said you were a liar, that you got no hope, that you were living in make-believe. Yeah. But he's now one of the most empathetic people that I know. And that's that's astonishing. That's so gross. That is just wonderful. Yeah. So there's Tom, then there's the Michelle, there's Danny, there's John, who's just been promoted to area manager in Wagamama, who's just John, John, walked, John walked through my door in Wagamama in High Cross looking for a part-time job. And I remember sort of sitting down talking to him thinking, my friend, you are crazy if you think you're just going to walk out of here with a part-time job, you know? And he's, <laughs> he said to me the other week, that, that was the longest job interview I've ever had, here." And I was like, that wasn't an interview, John. That was just me understanding what your why was. What did you want to do? What, what did you want to be? And how was I going to help you get there? And he's like, man, he's like, that's it. But that's, again, that's, that's the joy of this industry, isn't it? We get to really, we get to help people work out what's important to them yeah. and then really think about how they are going to deliver that on a daily and day out basis. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the that probably leads us nicely to the question about if you were to give a piece of advice to somebody who was looking to come into this industry, what what would you say to them? I think the first one is stop asking questions and just get on with it, get it done. And then the second one is be open, be ready for the fact that it's going to be hard, but by God, it's going to make you smile. And be open to the opportunity that every single day of the week, every single minute of every day of the week, we get the chance to make people smile. And whether that's your team, whether that's your guests, whether that's your suppliers, look for that opportunity. Look for that opportunity to make their day a little bit better. Because if you do that for every one of those people, every element of your business will flourish and will be successful. And your career will flourish and be successful. Yeah, It is just, it's as simple as that. It's as simple as saying yes to the opportunity that gets presented. Don't sit back and wait and think good things will come to me if I work hard. Yes, they will, but it'll take some time. Push up, be open, make sure people know what you want to achieve, and then make sure that they are then you're surrounding yourself with people who are going to help you to achieve that. 
there are a huge amount of amazing leaders in this industry who are empathetic, who will understand what is driving you as an individual, and they will throw everything they've got at doing that for you. Yeah. Make sure you find that person to work with. If you don't have that, then move along. I think um, this industry, more than any other that I can think of, has empathy in swathes. Yes. It's not, you don't have to look too hard to find people with it. It's inbuilt, I think. It's inbuilt in all of us. We care. That's the simple thing. Yeah. That's the thing about hospitality. We care about other people. And sometimes to we care about other people more than we care about ourselves, um, which isn't always great for our own health, physical or mental, I guess, sometimes. But we do. And yeah. that is genuinely one of the things I love most about this industry is that I'm surrounded by people who just who would do more for the next person. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Couple more things, and then I'm conscious of time, so we should probably wrap this up. Although um, I look forward to the time where 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 you and I can hook up and just have a pint and chat. Um, oh, those days! Can't wait. Bring them Can't back. Can't wait. Uh, all in good time. All in good time. Yeah. Well, let, let's all assume that we're going to get past the um, the the lockdown scenario that we're in at the moment. When we get to the other side of that, what what does the next year hold for you? Do you know, right here and right now, I genuinely do not know which in some ways is utterly terrifying and in other yep. ways is bloody invigorating because I started this year feeling actually I just had the uh, the best couple of years uh, with my uh, training business. It was amazing. Uh, it gone really, really well. The first year was tough, but the last couple have been really successful and I just felt that that was going to continue. EXP was just absolutely blowing up and this is, this thing has just come at all the wrong times. So do I do I know what's going to come? No, probably not. If I'm honest with you, and yeah, I'm I'm okay with that because I'm open to the opportunity. I'm open to what is going to happen. And I think that's the thing that's going to really help us get through this situation is being open to the opportunities it's going to bring us because they will be new. So will it at the start of the year? If you would have said to me, "What's what's your year look like?" Well, I would have been smashing out delivering more training. I would have been picking up more contracts with uh, with the big high street brands and actually kind of starting to go back to influencing and impacting those those people who are in those big brands and really going yep. there. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. I kind of look at it and think I'm still going to be influencing people. I'm still going to be making an, a, a difference to folks going forward. What what that looks like, I'm not entirely sure, but I'm okay with that. Yeah, I'm really okay with that, and I don't know why. I feel like I should probably be having a, um, a probably a, a, a panic right now, and I think this has been one of the one of the the, the rare moments. So my my mum sadly died last March, and and it was hard. It was tough. But if I'm genuinely yeah. honest with you, I'm so glad that she's not around to have to deal with this situation right now because right now she would be she didn't understand what I did for a living at that point. You know, she just she every day for three years after I left day to day restaurant life and set up my own business, she would just be like, So when are you gonna get a proper job, Kieran? When are you actually gonna get a job, Kieran? I'm like, Mum, I do have a job. So about this proper job, Kieran, I'm like every week. I would go and see it every Saturday. And that was the first part of the conversation. And I, I just didn't know how to kind of, I tried to show what I was doing and I showed kind of some of the content that I produced. She was like, okay, that's good. But you're swearing a bit too much there, Kieran, because I am quite fruitful in my language. I've been really contained today. It's been, I'm quite impressed with myself because I don't know what your rules are on swearing. I should have asked. I have none. I have none. I mean, I, I uh, probably definitely would uh, prefer 
uh, no effing and jeffing every other word, but um, but I'd, I'm just kind of happy to let people be themselves. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm a big fan of, fan of uh, fan of profanity. I'll be honest with you. I think there's a time and a place for everything. But uh, yeah, yeah, she watched the content. And she was like, "Here and stop swearing. You'll swear too much." And I was like, "Okay." <laughs> uh, and as she was saying that, she smacked me in the head. I'm like, "Woman, well, 45." She was like, "Still stop." And I was like, "Okay, mom, that's cool." So never too old for a smack around the head from your mom. No, never ever is a simple answer. But yeah. at that point, she was still having a nightmare about how I was going to make a living. So now she would be uh, just, I don't know, she'd be going insane, I think, to be honest with you. So I'm quite glad, actually, at this moment that she's kind of, she doesn't have to listen to this. But the reality is, this is a moment of opportunity, you know. And when I look at it, kind of this, I come from a place of, uh, of, of eternal optimism. I see that chances are there, opportunities are there, waiting to be taken, you know. I'm starting to write a book. You know, I've been I've been asked a couple of times, why don't you ever do that? Uh, academically, I am slightly challenged, always have been. Um, so it takes real time and effort for me to kind of focus to be able to do that. But I'm starting on it and it will be kind of around operations and it will be around how we influence and impact people's lives. Whether like I say whether that's our team, whether that's our guests, doesn't really matter. You know, we get to do that every day. So I'm, I'm starting work on that. Great time to get a couple of chapters down, it's, and and so I suppose certainly get in some form of flow with that uh, as well. Because I, I think writing a book is um, uh, there's probably a book in all of us in some way or some form, but finding the time it's usually one of those things that that gets shunted down the, the priority list, isn't it? Exactly. And at the moment, I have nothing but time. So yeah. what's my excuse? <laughs> you know, and if I'm honest with you, I think as as I've demonstrated today, it's um, I love to talk. You know, and one of the things I do I is... I haven't picked that up, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I love I love kind of getting on stage and and sharing kind of ideas and sharing stories with people because I think it's it's amazing that we get to do that and we get the opportunity to do that. And I count myself lucky again that I do get to do that. So one of the things that, that I will do is I will write a book and, and I will focus my kind of keynote uh in the next kind of uh, coming 12 months and it'll be around those concepts and those ideas and that's yep. that's really key to me because i do think we've got a, a lot of, a, a real importance to share the share the knowledge and the kind of the experiences that we've picked up over the years because you know i was talking to my wife about this morning she said there's a lot of people in the industry who kind of say well i was treated like that and it never did me any harm well we don't have to be like that anymore we can say well actually Maybe I was treated badly or maybe I was treated well, but I'm going to share with the next person in line the good stuff. So I think about the Johns, I think about the Michelles, I think about the Toms. All of those people excelled really far beyond where I was at their age, you know, with their development and with their kind of their understanding of what it took to really lead a business. You know, I, I was responsible for businesses at 2021, but I was probably wasn't really leading it in the way that I should have been. Whereas these folks, they, they got the opportunity to kind of learn from my experience and learn from where I'd gone wrong. So I think we should do more of that. I think everybody should take that opportunity because knowledge that's learned and then kept under lock and key mm, doesn't really have any value, if I'm honest mm. with you. Doesn't yeah. really have any value. So share I've, it. We're, we're, as a, uh, an industry, we're, we're getting much better at collaboration. And yes. uh, certainly from a, a, a mental perspective, not necessarily with with all uh, intellectual property, but yeah, a lot, lot better. And this this period has really proven that, uh, I think, is that, you know, everybody's putting an arm around each other and trying to help uh, everybody just get a step up and get, get on with it. I'm all about rounded perceptions of things, and I'm, I'm totally with you. I, I, I think you and I have pretty similar generations. 
when I grew up and I, I got into to the workforce, you, you know, it was kind of the norm that you just did 14 to 18 hour days and you didn't really ask any questions and you, you just got on with it and did it. And yeah, you, you worked yourself to the bone and into the ground on many, many occasions. But now I, I think to myself, well, maybe we were the stupid ones. Maybe we we should have been more responsible for our own well-being at that point. But, you know, I equally, I don't beat myself up over it. It's, uh, it is what it is, and I had a great time. So it's just about finding the balance. Yeah, and, and, and helping those next ones in the line to maybe not be in that situation where they're doing the 14, 15, 16 hour days and thinking that that's normal and that's that's what life has to be to be yep. successful, you know. We, we can help them see that it's not necessary. That's that's kind of the key for me. Yeah, I, I even if I'm lucky enough to to grow my own business to um to employ multiple people, it's one thing that I, and you can quote me on this if you're an employee of mine in the future listening to this, that I've often wondered about why we do things in certain ways. So you know, the let's take office hours being for the sake of our easy argument nine to five. Um, why is that? Well, that's because that's the way it's always been. Okay, well, that's not a good enough response. And I there was, I think it was Sweden who trialed this sort of six-hour days, whereby yep. people people come in after rush hour and leave before rush hour. And actually, the productivity you get in that condensed period is more than if they're there and forced to come at certain times. And I just really love that as a as a concept. But that's something that I'll I'll explore in due course. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it just, I mean, our, our Nordic friends and our kind of Scandinavian friends, we can learn a lot of lessons from those guys. Yeah. You know, that, that concept of like looking at the way that we work and looking at kind of what's useful and what's productive. You know, is productive being at our desk 10, 12 hours a day? No, I don't think it is, if I'm honest with you. It's productive driving an hour and a half to get to work, feeling tired, feeling frustrated, feeling irritated, so that you then lose the first half an hour of work because you've got to shake that off. No, I don't think it is. So I think there's there's a whole load of change coming our way as well from again from this situation that we're in, which yeah. for me is makes perfect sense to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. it's exciting. It is it genuinely is. exciting, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Once you get past this sort of trauma and you yeah, come you come up for air um, and you see it for what it is, but you know people forget that we're an incredibly adaptable species. You know we're we probably don't give ourselves enough credit for that. But we're, you know, you look at how businesses are adapting in front of our eyes at the moment, and we'll come out the other side looking completely different from how they went in, mm-hmm. but still there uh, yeah. and still um, making a difference uh, in some form. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. So, uh, well, I'm going to ra- wrap this up now. I'm conscious that we've um, we were talking before we came on uh, onto the the microphone about. Um, the, the opportunity on Apple Podcasts to to speed up the podcast. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to tell people to do that at the beginning of this one. Um, <laughs> but um, if people want to get a hold of you to learn more about you or or engage with you in some form, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, I, I mean, they can find me anywhere on social media. Uh, just look for the boy Bailey speaks, and uh, you'll find me on Twitter. You'll find me on Instagram. I don't. I'm not very good on Instagram, but they can find me on there. You know, I kind of it's either pictures of my f- food or my dog. Um, yeah, it's the two things really. Uh, both things make me happy. LinkedIn, you can find me on there. I'm pretty proactive on there too, and uh, I'm a big believer in saying yes. So if you want to say hey, say hey, and we can have a conversation because. Uh, I just, yeah, I, I don't do that thing where 
people kind of, when you say, can I just have five minutes of your time? A lot of folks get really on, uh, frustrated with that. I'm like, okay, I can make some time for, for most people in most situations. So reach out. If you think it's good, bad or indifferent, if you think I should just learn to shut up every now and again, feel free to let me know because, uh, well, I'm always open to feedback as a simple answer. It's an integral part of what we do. Absolutely. Good man. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. A really, really lovely chat. Great to get to know your story a little bit better, which we'll uh, explore over beer. Yes, absolutely. Beer. Whenever That's we're allowed. Oh, just It's coming. Yeah. It is coming. Yeah. But it can't come well, soon enough. When this is aired, it may well even be here. I, I, this, yeah, we'll see. We will indeed. Maybe by that point, we'll be we'll be allowed to buy takeaway beer from pubs. I think I think that's what they're getting to, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I think uh, when this is all done and dusted, I was chatting to Tim Foster from Yummy Pubs, and he's going to have an almighty pub, a mighty booze up at uh, Summerstown. So uh, we'll make sure that we're all at that. Fabulous. We'll have a grand old time. A grand old time. Excellent. Great stuff. All right. Thanks very much, Kieran. Really good to chat. My absolute pleasure. It has been an absolute joy. We'll see you soon. Thanks very much, Phil. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. And there we have it. Some absolute nuggets from Kieran there, as well as having a really interesting and colourful story, just like his character. Don't forget, we launch a brand new episode each week, so hit that subscribe button, give us a like and a share across all your favourite social channels, and let's share these hospitality stories as far as we can. See you next week.